0: Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to day three of the Bar of Ireland conference, the title of which this year is Human Rights, both at home and Human Rights Abroad. I would firstly, before we start, like to thank our sponsors, and they are Aeon and also Irish Life. I would also like to thank all of our attendees, because through your generous contributions, we are now in a position to disperse amongst our two chosen charities, over five and a half thousand euro. And those two charities are the Capuchin Day Centre and also the Irish Rule of Law International. That is a human rights foundation, which is run by Angus Kelly, who is a human rights activist. So thank you everyone for your kind contributions. They will be given equally to those two charities. I would also like to thank Orla O'Donnell, who is going to take over as presenter later, And I would particularly like to thank our three speakers, a triumvirate of justices who are giving of their time to address us on the subject of rights. And our first speaker today will be Baroness Hale. And before we move on to my own opening comments, I would just like to say that I noted in a book this afternoon entitled First Hundred Years of Women in Law that Baroness Hale has become known as the Beyoncé of the legal world. So I just wanted to say that a quote from this book, which is available in all good bookshops beside you. So welcome, Baroness Hale. In addition, we have uh, Ms. Justice Rosalie Abella, who is joining us from Canada. She was a justice in the Supreme Court of Canada. And finally, I would also like to extend our thanks and warm welcome to our own justice of the Supreme Court, Ms. Justice Mary Finley Gagan. So, thank you to all three of you. Thank you for giving up your time. People might ask, why are we addressing the subject of human rights here at the bar? And the purpose of today's address in respect of rights is in commemoration of the fact that next November will be the 100th commemoration of the call of the first woman to the bar, not just in Europe, but the bar in Ireland and the bar in the UK as it was at the time. In those hundred years, we have made great strides in respect of equality, in respect of advancements towards uh, greater diversity. <clears throat> in 1921, the first two women called to the bar were Avril Deverell and Frances Kyle. In 1925, we saw the first female professor of law here in Ireland and that was Professor Francis Moran. In 1963 we saw the first female judge Eileen Kennedy. In 1980 we saw the first female judge of the High Court, Miss Justice Mella Carroll, who the year before was the first female chair of the Bar of Ireland some 41 years ago. In 1990 we saw Mary Robinson a member of the inner bar, a member of the Bar of Ireland, the first woman elected as President of Ireland. In 2011, we saw Ms Justice Susan Denham appointed as the first Chief Justice, the first female Chief Justice. And her words, and I quote, standing on the shoulders of the pioneering women of previous generations. And there have been pioneering women, and there have been, advancements in laws to protect not just women and children but other minorities, we've had the Equal Status Acts that aim to ensure that there is no discrimination on the grounds of gender, marital status, family status, age, disability, sexual orientation, race, religion, etc. I just want to quote an aim from a politician in respect of the Sex Discrimination Act, The aim was to remove all existing inequalities in the law as between men and women. That was a statement by David Lloyd George in 2019. So yes, we have made some progress, but I would submit that there is a lot more to be done. And we here at the bar, we have to ensure that we advance diversity, that we advance equality. That we ensure that the human rights of all, particularly minorities and those who could be prone to being oppressed, to ensure that their rights are protected and vindicated. Otherwise, what is the purpose of us being lawyers and us being barristers? So, it is with that backdrop of ensuring the protection of human rights, some of which we take for granted. They're protected in this country because of our constitution, but abroad, They seem to be trodden on. Certain parts of the planet don't even recognise women as persons. Certain parts of the world don't recognise gay people as being human beings. That is something we have to guard against, and that is why we have this presentation over the last three days on the subject of human rights. I would now like to welcome our presenter, our moderator, who is Miss Orla O'Donnell who is an Irish journalist well known to us all as the RTE Legal Affairs Correspondent. Um, Orla has been regularly upon our television screens and has on numerous occasions presented from here at the Four Courts and the Distillery Building and has commented on various cases as they have unfolded. Orla is originally from Dalky in Dublin and started her career as Galway and Dublin correspondent for T.G. Carr from July 1996 until June of 1999. She then joined Radio Telefiger in June of 1999 and has appeared on RTE's main news programmes, both television and radio, since. Since September of 2018, Orla has been the face of legal affairs on RTE. So I would like to thank you, Orla, and I'm going to hand over to you now.
1: Thank you, Maura. And actually, tragically, I'm doing legal affairs for a little bit longer than 2018, which is, and I'm feeling very old now. But um, When I was asked to uh, prepare for this uh, talk, I read a biography of Averill Deverell online. Uh, She's one of the first two women who were called to the Irish bar. Uh, And at the end of this article online, it talked about her brilliance as a golfer. And how despite uh, or maybe because of her prowess as a golfer, one Joseph Healy in 1927 put down a motion to restrict membership of the Bar Golf Society to men only. And this motion was carried. Uh, And the uh, biography online went on to sum up her career by saying, but that didn't matter to her, to a woman well used to the company of men and competitiveness and possessing a confidence born out of her performances as an amateur actress, the antediluvian attitudes of some male colleagues were hardly a barrier. And it said she went on to have a successful career as a barrister and retired in 1969, commanding respect and affection in equal measure from her colleagues. And I just couldn't help thinking that the writer there had glossed over 42 years of antediluvian attitudes from some male colleagues and no doubt from other males along the way. It couldn't have been easy for her to forge a career at the bar and to sustain her career at the bar before retiring as mother of the bar. Uh, three of our speakers tonight are have also retired or are just about to retire, and they have forged stunningly successful careers in three jurisdictions. And of course, you yourself more are still at the coalface. And I'm hoping we get a chance this evening to see behind the gloss that we don't gloss over things well they they, they were well able to deal with the men so that's the end of that and um, so I'm hoping we get a little bit of an insight into the challenges they faced uh, in their careers and the insights they may have for others. Now I'm told they're going to refer to each other as Brenda, Mary and Rosie but I am not that brave and also you've asked me to introduce them properly so I'm going to try to do that and as I've said I'm only giving a flavor of the kind of achievements that each of these women has. Um, first of all, we have Lady Brenda Hale, the former president of the UK Supreme Court. She retired in January 2020. Uh, she was a teacher, a researcher, a writer at the University of Manchester and practiced, I think, at the Manchester Bar and uh, was also a member of the Law Commission before becoming a High Court judge in 1994. In 1999, she was appointed to the Court of Appeal of England and Wales, and she became president of the Supreme Court in 2017. And of course, she famously announced the decision of that court in relation to the proroguing of parliament in uh, 2019, becoming a bit of an internet sensation in the process. Uh, from Ireland, we have Ms. Justice Mary finlay Gagan, well known to members of the Bar of Ireland. Um, she, according to her details, Uh, Studied maths and physics in UCD before turning to law. Uh, She was admitted as a solicitor in 1973, became a partner in the campus Gerald in 1979. She was called to the bar in 1980, uh, became a senior counsel in 1988, and a high court judge in 2002. And in 2004, she became one of the judges responsible for the commercial list in that court. Uh, She was a court of appeal judge from 2014 to 2017, and then became a Supreme Court judge before she retired. Ms. Justice uh, Rosalie Silberman Abella uh, was the first Jewish woman and first refugee appointed to the Supreme Court of Canada in 2004. Uh, she was born in a displaced persons camp in Germany, and her family came to Canada as refugees. She was called to the Ontario Bar in 1972 and in 1976 she was appointed to the family court at the age of 29 and intriguingly she was the first pregnant person appointed to the judiciary in Canada and she has written over 90 articles and has co-edited four books and you of course more will be well known to everybody here today uh, but you are I suppose well known for being the second female chair of the Bar Council of Ireland uh, the first one being Mella Carroll 41 years ago I think, uh, quite an achievement and quite a long time coming as we all observed over the years. Uh, So speakers with a great insight into the law and into the challenges uh, that are faced by women uh, uh, working in the law. And I suppose maybe I'll start with uh, Ms. Justice Abella. Abella. Um, Your family came to Canada as refugees. You were born in a displaced persons camp in Germany. Did your background spur you on? What made you choose
2: this path? Was there a particular determination in your life? Oh, it, it, it was defining my background. My father had been a lawyer, um, a graduate of the Jagiellonian University in Krakow before the war. And as you know, the, the European legal system was eight years of training. Uh, but he married my mother on September the 3rd, 1939, when the war broke out and never had a chance to practice law. They spent the war in concentration camps, most of the war. Uh, Their son was killed, my father's whole family, and after the war, they went to Germany where my father taught himself English um, in order to apply to work for the Allies in Southwest Germany. So the Americans hired him to set up a legal system for displaced persons in Southwest Germany, and we were there for four years until we finally got permission to come to Canada um, as refugees. In 1950, almost as soon as we came, he went down to the law society and said, I have practiced in Germany. I have uh, here are my qualifications from Europe. Uh, What test do I have to take in order to be a lawyer? And they said, you can't take any test because to be a lawyer, you have to be a citizen, which he, of course, wasn't Uh, would have taken five years. And he had my mother, my sister and my grandmother to support. So he became an insurance agent and never complained, happy to be in Canada, in in the safety and security of the country. But the day he came home is one of my earliest memories in Canada when he told us that he could not practice law. And that was the moment I decided I was going to be a lawyer. I had no idea what it meant. I mean, how can you know when you're four years old? All I knew was he was being deprived, I thought, of something unfairly because he had these qualifications. He spent all of these years. um, He had suffered enough. Uh, The Americans had hired him and he was not allowed to practice. So I said, fine, I'm going to be a lawyer. Four years old. Um, So it was a childhood dream until, and I kept, I stuck to it until I, I read Les Miserables. And reading that book was when I connected injustice to law and realized this is somebody who spent 19 years in jail for stealing a loaf of bread. So it was Hugo who kind of, brought me into the possibility that law correcting injustice was something that I could do, which fit into my background as well as the child of Holocaust survivors. So I never stopped thinking that I wanted to be a lawyer. I knew no women who were lawyers at the time. People kept telling me girls aren't lawyers, uh, but I didn't care because my parents said, why not? And so I did it. There were five women in law school with me uh, out of 150. And I found um, to my great relief that that childhood dream to try to replace the dream he had of being a lawyer turned out to be such a fit for who I was and what I wanted to do. Um, being a lawyer for me is probably the most noble and majestic role you can play. Orla, I, I feel journalism is really, <laughs> fundamentally important. You have a justice role to play as well. Uh, But it has been a privilege to participate in this generation's pursuit of rights, human rights, uh, the development of of justice for women, minorities, uh, persons with disabilities, Indigenous people. Um, I think we've had Copernican revolutions, one after the other in all of these areas. Uh, And I've had a front row seat on a lot of it. I've had a, a bit part on some of it. Uh, and I can't believe two weeks before my retirement, looking back now as I finally am allowing myself to do, that this generation has done so much to fix the injustices. There is, as Morris says, a lot left to do. There will always, the business of human rights will always be booming. Uh, but what we've done so far gives me hope, at least in our countries, that that will be a trajectory that continues towards increasing inclusion, increasing justice, and the diminishment of injustice. And, uh, Lady Hale, would you agree with that 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 was your
1: childhood dream to become a lawyer? And would you have had similar aspirations or what
3: what was your hope when you were younger about going to law? Well, it wasn't a childhood dream. Uh, I didn't have anything like the exciting story uh, that Rosie has just told us. Uh, But I was the first girl from my little girl's high school in North Yorkshire to study law. And I'm fond of saying that the reason why I chose to study law was that my headmistress did not think I was clever enough to study history. (laughs) So uh, we looked around for something else that I could do. And I had been inspired by the English history of the 17th century. That was the crucial century in English history when uh, we basically had a rebellion, killed our king, restored the king, got rid of his uh, successor on terms that we now had a constitutional monarchy. And a lot of brave things happened in that century. So that is, I think, why I said to my headmistress when she said, well, I don't think you can do history. I said, well, how about law? And that's why I went off to do law. Uh, And of course I found that there was a huge amount of interest in law. Uh, It is such fun, is it not? Um, A lot of people don't think law is fun, but actually uh, Rosie and I, both think law is a great deal of fun. There is so much to it. And there is so much harm that can be done through legal processes, but there's also so much good. And it's our mission to do as much good as we possibly can with it. You were in academic life in the University of Manchester before you became
1: a judge. That was a rather different path. What challenges, how did you make a transition then
3: into being a judge in court? (laughs) Well, (laughs) you'll have to ask other people about that. I went to teach law at Manchester University after leaving Cambridge, uh, partly because they suggested that I qualified and practiced as a barrister, as well as doing teaching. They thought it would enrich my teaching and they were right. Uh, And in those days, you could qualify as a barrister by taking a self-tuition correspondence course, which is what I did cost me 20 pounds, I think, uh, for some nutshells and model questions and model answers. just shows how easy the bar exams were in those days. Uh, But that meant that I could then uh, qualify as a barrister and do some practice, which I did for a few years, as well as teaching. Uh, And without that experience, of course, I could never have become a judge, because you have to be a barrister or a certain sort of solicitor in order to become a judge. But I had to choose between the teaching and the being a barrister, because you can't go on doing both successfully for any great length of time. Uh, And I chose to stay in academic life, uh, all sorts of reasons, but mainly because easier to combine with having a family. Uh, And my husband at the time was also starting out at the bar and we thought it would be a good idea if one of us had a steady salary. Academics are not paid a lot, but they are paid. Whereas as the barristers will know, it can take quite a long time to get paid and sometimes you're never paid. So it seemed like a good idea. And so it never occurred to me I'd become any sort of judge. But everything that I did as an academic led directly or indirectly to a public appointment. I wrote a book about mental health law, which led to my becoming a member of mental health review tribunals, my first judicial appointment. I started a journal of social welfare law, which led to my becoming a member of the Council on Tribunals, which I think also led to my being tapped on the shoulder to become a baby judge, part-time judge. We rely a lot in England and Wales on part-time fee-paid judges. We couldn't do without them. Uh, And they're the inevitable start to a judicial career. Uh, And then I wrote a book on family law, which I think was a reason for my appointment as a law commissioner. So after nine and a half years in public service, they plucked up courage and they thought, well, we could do with more women on the high court bench. Who do we know who might be okay to do it? Oh yes, we know Brenda. Um, She's been in the law commission. She's been making a success of that. She's not been in court very much, but she has been judging for nine and a half years too. So let's give it a punt. So they took a risk and appointed me. That's the story. <laughs> Ms. Justice finlay Gagan, you uh, didn't heed
1: this warning either about getting involved with somebody who was also involved in the law, uh, but you chose to continue on and to become a barrister uh, and practice. Um, what spurred you on in your career, especially uh, practicing in the commercial area, which uh, even in recent years, many women say is a very male dominated area.
4: Well, I mean, my story, looked like um. Brenda has said is far less exciting than Rosie's story but on the other hand I think my initial challenge as it were when I was leaving school was I could always do a few sums and um, I decided I'd try and do an honours maths degree and I was told no women don't do that Um, I was advised that the last woman who tried to do an honours maths degree in UCD had had a mental breakdown and I should avoid that. Anyhow I did that got through it did okay. And then I decided really that mathematics I either act, I regret to say in Brenda's presence that academia wasn't for me, um, nor some of the other options that were available, becoming a, an actuary or going into computers and things which mathematicians seem to do a little um, weren't. And I really wanted to work with people. And I had seen, my, my father was practicing barrister at the time, and I had seen How much dad had enjoyed being a barrister and initially in 1970 when I decided to study professional law I said I would give the bar a go and dad who had brought me up to do anything and think I could do anything and encourage me with the maths and everything he said to me very firmly, strong advice, uh, the Irish bar is not a place for women. and I, I regret that I never kind of teased completely out with him why, but I think he probably thought that I'd get frustrated because I might not get the work. And in fairness to him, it must be remembered that in 1970, the Irish Bar, which comprised only 250 people practicing the Law Library, there were only 12 practicing women. There were 5% and there was no woman silk at the Irish Bar in 1970, so um, Mella Carroll didn't take silk till 76 and she was the first practicing barrister. Fanny Morn had been given silk as an academic but wasn't. So I went off and became a solicitor and I never regret it for a moment and that it's a long way of answering your question Orla because that led me into the commercial work. I was incredibly lucky um, both in my apprenticeship as a solicitor with John Gleeson and then um, I joined McCann Fitzgerald and I joined um, with another friend who had done solicitors with me, a male, and the two of us worked directly to the senior partner Alexis Fitzgerald in McCann Fitzgerald and uh, we were both in his the commercial department in McCann Fitzgerald starting in seventy three and Alexis never made a single difference between myself and my colleague Dara Hogan, and he threw work at us that I think we, in retrospect, we were probably unfit to do, but you know, you met the challenge, you got on with it, you did it, and I, I got incredible experience and I was treated, I was never treated any differently to any of my male colleagues, and. We were made partners very early in McCann Fitz and everything, but I still, I found myself at just about the age of 30 doing quite a lot of administration. Um, It was very interesting running, being involved in the running of a big partnership, but also and the commercial work, but I had a hankering to give the bar a go, so I went in 1980. So I came to the bar with a commercial law background, a practice in commercial law around the city of Dublin and um, you know colleagues who I'd worked with from other firms knew that that was my background and I was lucky enough then to get into a practice in that area of law. Um, and, but it was due to my experience as a solicitor that I really was a- able to get I- into that.
1: Do you think that that made you pretty unique in terms of commercial law and being a woman practicing in in commercial law because it seems to be still an issue in, in the bar today that not as many women get briefed and if you remember the gender diversity survey carried out in 2016 some women said that some men didn't want a female barrister that they would feel that that looked weak when they were fighting a big commercial battle did you come across that.
4: Well, that, that that was said, uh, undoubtedly, and there were clients probably who had that sentiment, um, you know, go, certainly going back in the day. I think there are a lot of very bright young female barristers now who are doing a lot of commercial work, but certainly when I was practicing as a junior, I can think of one other very distinguished woman who ended up in the Supreme Court, uh, uh, Fidelma Mackin, who was doing, she came in from an IP background, and again, she had worked before she came to the bar in intellectual property in a patent, and um, the two of us were doing a commercial practice, but I suppose it's correct to say we were. Uh, there were only a couple of us, and particularly when I took Silk, um, there weren't it probably was, and I took a good number of years before Fidelma, and there were probably no other female doing a commercial practice. Mary LaFoy was doing a bit more on the, the conveyancing side. So it was, but it didn't do me any harm. You know, if you're the only person doing something, people remember you. And so that, that was, you know, there were pluses, uh, and mine, and I'm sure there, were, there was work I wasn't given. And um, I i think you know particularly as a junior counsel um a um, couple of years after us in the bar i married and had three children in three years and you just couldn't do the work and you didn't get some of the fancy commercial work but you know you have to make choices and i didn't regret it at the time i wasn't able to be up all friday night and work all day saturday to prepare the injunctions for monday you know just you weren't able to do it. But I did miss out on work, whether it was because a woman, whether it was because I was a mother with young children. I don't mm. know. That's a, that's a, certainly an issue that we'll
1: come back to, I think. And I just wanted to ask Ms. Uh, Justice Abella about her. I was struck by your childhood I- idealism about the law, uh, about being inspired by Les Miserables and the loaf of bread and Jean Valjean. Is that something then that you actually put into practice did you when you actually became a barrister or became a lawyer did you feel you were fighting injustice because for example a lot of us who go into journalism feel that we're going into right wrongs to to you know to, to make the world a better place and we end up collating people's comments on twitter you know did you actually feel that the reality lived
2: up to that childhood idealism i never stopped to think about whether that childhood idealism was being challenged or not i mean when you practice laws Everyone who has done it will tell you, you practice client by client, case by case. I did everything that walked in the door. I did criminal law, real estate, corporate laws, civil litigation, family law, virtually everything. And idealism was not anything that what the, the human rights kind of speeches and lectures that I do now was not what I was about. I was about trying to fix for my clients the pain they were in. Um, and you learn what it's really all about, that it's not about you when you've got somebody sitting across from you saying, "Fix, fix this legal dilemma that I'm in. So for instance, it was considered a failure in those days if you went to court. I mean, the trick was to resolve the case without ever having to subject yourself to the possibility of a judicial fiat, which offended both sides. So I wasn't thinking, am I doing the idealistic thing? But what it got replaced by was an understanding that really what professionalism was was uh, a commitment to integrity, to compassion, to understanding what the world looked like to the people who were in front of you. Uh, the idealism was was really for for later. Um, it it never left me, but but professionalism is a bit about idealism, but it's mostly about doing the job as well as you could for every single client who's in front of you and in a way that every lawyer you dealt with would say uh, that was she was fair. She was, she was tough, but she was fair. So I don't know that, I, I, I mean, it's a very f- good question to what extent does that still drive you? I would say more and more and more because of what I see is happening to the rest of the world Am I tenaciously idealistic about what kind of world I want to see? But that's almost a separate piece from what kind of a lawyer and judge do I want to be? So the transcendent piece is judges should be committed to lawyers and judges should be committed to the idealism that justice represents. But the day to day is, are you doing your job with professionalism and uh, and can people look at you and say, um, she did it honestly, with decency, and um, she's earned our respect. Really, that's what it comes down to. So they're two separate conversations. I understand what you're saying. And that other part never leaves that little part of my gut that drives me. Um, but mostly what I felt was, Orla, I, there were so few of us. And I'm sure Brenda and Mary had the same thing. I knew that it was almost incumbent on me to work twice as hard as anybody else. That never left me. But also that if I didn't do a good job being whoever I was, and I was many things in in my career, I was very lucky. They would say, you see what happens when you have a woman. So I was very well aware that we are each the early ones, pioneering metaphors. Um, And I, I, I I don't think I've ever met a lawyer in our generation early. And I never met another woman in the courtroom, by the way, who wasn't concerned about making sure that people didn't say it's an experiment that didn't work. So although we each took professional risks, we were not going to put uh, our, our successors at risk by not doing the best possible job we could do in whatever area we were in. So this has been a fascinating conversation for me because you have academic excellence. You have commercial law excellence. And it goes to something else that used to float around the profession in the early 70s. To be a really good judge, you had to follow a certain stream. And we now understand that being a really good judge, for instance, is having a portable tool called a good legal mind. And it can learn different areas. So you don't have to just be a civil litigator. You you aren't precluded because you were a family lawyer. You aren't precluded because you just did commercial work. Everything produces good judges if you have what it takes to be a good, open-minded judge. But there's no question, as, as they've told you, there were certain streams that made the judiciary Less inevitable than it was for certain other people, and I knew a lot of men who went into the career saying, "One day I want to be a judge." No woman ever talked like that in our day. We we were just lucky to be in the profession.
1: We're just having a little bit of internet difficulties. I'm surprised we got this far without any internet difficulties, but here we are. Everybody froze, but we're back again. Um, uh, What I was going to say there, yes, Frances Kyle, I think one of the first, uh, the other first female member of the bar, she actually uh, echoed what you were saying there, or said what you were saying there about when she was asked why she didn't go into conveyancing where she wouldn't have had to go to court. She said she felt a responsibility as one of the first to, to practice and show the way, although I don't think it quite worked out like that for her in her life. What's your view on what Ms. Justice finlay Gagan was saying there about having to make choices? And as I said, I was kind of struck by the fact that one of the uh, intriguing things about you was being the first pregnant member of the judiciary.
2: Uh, How did that come about and how did that affect your work or did it? I think um, I I was I, I heard what Mary said and it was interesting. I never felt I had to make choices because I didn't think they were mine to make. And that may be because we were immigrants to Canada. So we lived in terms of what opportunities will be presented rather than what choice am I entitled to make. And I don't mean, Mary, that this is a sense of entitlement that you had, but I wanted to go to law school. After that, I put a seatbelt on and I just went on a trajectory through the career. Um, and it was like that that uh, songwriter. Tin Pan, uh, Tin Pan Alley songwriter, Sammy Kahn. Somebody once said to him, what came first, Mr. Kahn, the words of the music? And he said, the phone call. And that was my career. It was, do you want to run a labor board? Sure. Do you want to run a law reform commission? Okay. Do you want to be a judge, even though I was pregnant? Everybody said, don't, the family court is the bottom of the judicial hierarchy. I said, I don't care. I don't even know any judges and they want me to be a judge. Of course, I'll be a judge. So I never made these choices. I just accepted the opportunities that came along knowing I would work very hard to do my best to do them well. So, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a different framework. And I think if I had left law school saying one day I want to be a judge, i would not have taken any of the professional risks that i took in my career because i never had an end goal one day i want to be so nothing i did was measured against the possibility that it would enhance or reduce that prospect because i never presumed any prospect so choices no but a lot of good luck because you know having children is having a family Wanting to do well, we didn't talk about work-life balance in those days because we knew there was no such thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You were working all the time. You were with the family all the time. Nobody ever said, gee, have I spent my three hours this week relaxing? Like you just, you just and no leaning in or out or up or down or any of that stuff. Um, you just did it. And then as now, the three of us look back and say, I can't believe I did it. So we we had no idea how it was going to work out. Lady Hale, would you echo that? Did you feel you had to make choices? Well,
3: I would certainly echo no game plan, no idea how it would work out, seize whatever opportunities came along, even if they seemed quite scary or risky ones, like when I was asked to become a judge, having not been in court then for 10 years. Now, that was a pretty scary thing to do. Uh, but uh, I seized that opportunity because it seemed like an interesting challenge. Now, I'm not sure that Rosie is completely right because she did make choices. She made the choice to seize the opportunities that came her way. And again, I made the choice to seize the opportunities that came my way, Uh, even though they were great surprise in many many situations, it was a great surprise, Uh, but it has to be done. And uh, then you do the best you possibly can at the new opportunity that's come your way. uh, And maybe it leads on to something else, but not a game plan, I quite agree. I didn't have a game plan. I think probably by the time I was appointed to the high court, I was hoping that I would be appointed to the high court because they were looking for women, really quite deliberately then. Uh, And the trouble was there weren't a lot of us about And so there have been points in my career when it was a positive advantage to be a woman. And I think that was true when I went to the Law Commission. I think it was true when I went to the High Court, even when I went to the Court of Appeal and certainly when I went to the House of Lords. So in our generation, were plenty of opportunities to be the first woman this and the first woman that. I feel sorry for the younger lawyers now. There aren't so many opportunities to be the first, but there are plenty of opportunities to be excellent professional lawyers with a much greater opportunity to aspire to the top in a way that Rosie and I never felt that we could.
1: Maura, what's your view as someone who's still... Uh, operating at the cold face, do you feel that that there is this you know do you feel you have to make choices or do you feel there's this freedom to grab every opportunity that comes your way and, and for the people you represent do do the women that you represent do they feel like that or do they feel pressured do they feel they have to make a choice between their family and the bar
0: um the bar is slowly opening up but i think uh particularly young married women or young women with children find, for example, as we found with our Minister for Justice, that there is very little scope for the equivalent of maternity leave or childcare, um, which is a huge issue now. Um, most people work in this day and age, most couples have to work if they're together, whether they be male and female or, or same-sex couple. they have to work to pay their mortgages, pay their bills. And if they have children, they have to pay for childcare. And we don't have childcare here uh, at the four courts or in any of the court facilities. They're not allowed or prescribed by the court service. Um, I'm not sure there is one in Dal Aaron, which could be our Houses of Parliament. Um, but that is definitely a hurdle. And the, the rearing of children invariably is left to uh, women, not to the, the male counterpart. Um, some do, but the majority of the rearing of the child seems to be left to females. I'm probably going to get shot now and castigated by my male colleagues for saying that, um, but but that is the reality. And there are certain instances where, even in my own, I'm I'm nearly thirty years now at the bar. Um, I'm originally from from Leitrim, so I practiced on the Northern Circuit, Midland Circuit, and then since I took silk, I've been here in Dublin all the time. But you'd, you'd come across certain cases, <coughs> excuse me, where the the client would look at you and say you're representing me, you know, kind of looking behind you at some chap who's six foot two or six foot three, and you could see it in their eyes, longingly wishing that that would be their barrister, but invariably coming back out of court, they wanted to clap me on the back and bring me for a pint, but um, I was very lucky in that regard, but you could see it, it's just a difficulty and it's an inherent issue in our society where it has been male-dominated for so long. as I say, it is slowly changing, but it hasn't changed enough. And I feel sorry for those who are in minorities in this country because um, despite the uh, Discrimination Act, outlawing discrimination against women, and despite our Equal Status Act, we still have discrimination against minorities. It still um, seems very much as a male dominated society, male controlled society. The majority of our uh, politicians are male you know, the majority of decision-makers tend to be male. I'm not so certain they've made such a great job of it over the last hundred years, but that's an entirely different conference and debate. But thank you,
4: Orla. Orla, I wonder if I just clarify what I meant by making (laughs) choices. I I just don't know if if, um, Justice Abela picked me up correctly. I I mean, I, I, I continue to practice throughout, but... I do think within that, and without within, as Lady Hala said, when you are going, when you are given opportunities, you have to make choices. Are you going to take those opportunities? And as a practicing barrister, you are, you know, rung up and offered work sometimes and very interesting work. But if you have another commitment on that day already, you do have to make the choice. And I made the choice when I had children, I worked right up till the day or actually, though though obviously the clients and solicitors never knew, to several days past the due date of the children, but I did make a choice to take a couple of months out of court, even though we had no maternity leave or anything, after the children were born. And I've no doubt that damaged my practice because they said, oh, she's not available, you know, because you had to say there was no such thing as an acknowledged maternity leave. But, But you... I mean, you can't bilocate. You have, there are 24 hours in the day. And I think everybody has to work out how do they solve pursuing their careers and also giving of their time to their family. And it, it, it's a personal decision, and people's circumstances are, are different. But I'm a, certainly a huge believer in taking opportunities and it would have it killed me on occasion when i couldn't take up something because of a clash and, and the clash might have been some other work too sometimes but um uh, but i do think that we do have to make choices and those of us with family commitments um that's one element of the things that we have to put into the equation when you're making choices as to whether you're going to take up Opportunities, or what you're going to do for the next two weeks, or whatever. You think
2: you go. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. You'll go ahead I, I just think more. More. These are two very important points because we we have been the three of us. We're now at the stage where we can say we've been very lucky, and mm-hmm. we've been able to figure out for our own benefit how things work. But look at the changes in the legal profession. It's now about 50% uh, of women in the legal profession, certainly in Canada. But look how many women are leaving the profession. So your point, Maura, about how we, we think because we have the numbers now, we have succeeded finally in an egalitarian approach to the legal profession without acknowledging this reality that somebody, if you're going to have children, and we do, families are so important. You know, if you decide that you want to have children, the world, the profession has to accommodate that reality. And for me, I have never understood how, on the one hand, government policy can be of course, women have the right to work without recognizing that unless you give childcare, make that available so that they're not getting up at five in the morning, going to another end of the city to put their kids somewhere, coming home and then doing full-time unpaid work after their underpaid work. And I'm not just talking about lawyers. We're dreaming in technicolor. It's not gonna happen without the childcare. So either be open and say, okay, we, we don't want women to work. We were kidding. We don't want women to work. But if you do, and they, and as you say, Moira, sometime it's a competition between Poverty and working, they don't have a choice. They've got to do it. We have to finally figure out how we're going to accommodate that very important human reality of women, particularly still having the primary responsibility, at least psychologically, and making it possible for all of those choices that men have and should have available to them. So taking childcare out of it, it's not going to happen. Are the firms adjusting? Are they saying, okay, uh, you know, somebody has a, God forbid, a heart attack, gone for four or five months. Everybody understands they have no choice. Maternity leave for six months. Are you really serious about your commitment to the profession? I mean, the whole perception still is rooted in, this is the way we've done it. Why can't you do it the way we've done it? Well, you can't. It just isn't true for most women and and most men. So I think that's a huge hurdle. Numerically, we've been very successful in increasing at least women in the profession, but we have not succeeded in keeping them. And that makes me very sad. Yeah, it's whether or not there's
1: the support there to make those choices or to be able to make those choices. And I think a lot of women might say that, that they're not able to choose, they're not able to go to take a few months off after they've had a baby or whatever. And I suppose, the figures here seem to show that while judges, we have an almost, well, we're getting there in terms of equality between male and female judges, when it comes to senior counsel, the higher the, the, the senior lawyers, I think it's 17% of senior counsel are women, the latest figures that we have. And um, I was wondering, about, uh, Lady Hale, have you noticed this in the UK in terms of uh, women being less represented at the higher levels of, of advocacy? Like, you know, some of the cases that you've been involved in have been uh, huge cases that have been mm-hmm. Uh, concerning these very important issues. um, Have you felt that that there are fewer women involved?
3: Well, definitely there have been fewer women involved. If you think of the two most notorious cases that the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom decided uh, recently, uh, the uh, two cases brought by Mrs. Gina Miller, challenging various aspects of uh, the government's activities in the run-up to Brexit, In the first of those cases, I think there were about 11 counsel who actually addressed the court of whom only one was a woman. In the Mm -hmm. second of those cases, there were probably seven counsel who addressed the court and none of them were women. So that is a sad fact. Although we do have some uh, star performers uh, in the Supreme Court who are women uh, and everybody would acknowledge that and just as in Ireland, the number of women Queen's Council has been going up at one percentage point a year, roughly, over the last 10 years. So we're about 17% as well. And that is, as I say, a about um, 10% better than it was 10 years ago. Mm. But could I make one other point? We tend to think of success in the law in terms of becoming senior counsel or a a prominent advocate or a partner in a big firm of solicitors. What a lot of women who want to balance their family and professional responsibilities in fact do, is they may take a little bit of time off when they have children, but what they then do is move sideways. They go into other sorts of legal work. They go into the government legal service, for example. In uh, England, and I suppose Wales too, 60% of government lawyers are women. Uh, They go into local government lawyering. They go into advising magistrates courts. They go into the regulatory world, which is an enormous world these days. Things like the Bank of England, things like the Financial Conduct Authority, things like the Financial Ombudsman Service, those sorts of things, which are sort of some of them regulatory, some of them part of the dispute resolution mechanisms that we have. A lot of women go into that and a lot of women uh, become in-house counsel in commerce, finance and industry. I think they probably have a majority in in those, those fields as well. So... What bothers me is that we tend to think of success and we tend to think of judicial appointments in terms of the traditional bar and solicitors, whereas there are all these other brilliant women around there who ought to be regarded as candidates for judicial appointment. I think particularly of the government legal service because their job is to tell truth to power. They have got to. Uh, I've
1: got some questions coming in here. So I'll, I'll try to put some of the questions that are coming in from those uh, who are watching this discussion. And uh, Just on that, do you think that a, a female lawyer... The question is, would a female lawyer produce a different experience of dispute resolution? Is there a difference between how a woman lawyer might, might approach something, uh, or, or is that an irrelevant question? And is, is there any difference at all? For example, in those cases that you have talked about where many of the advocates were men, were senior men, would it have made a difference if they were women? Would there have been a difference in the way they approached the case?
3: <laughs> Most of the time, we are lawyers first. Uh, and we have, uh, as Rosie was saying, the objective of doing the best we can. Uh, If if you're a lawyer, an advocate, your objective is to do the best you can for your clients. Um, A a former colleague of mine, Sir Stephen Sedley, has said that the job of an advocate is to reason from a given conclusion. In other words, you work out what results your client can best expect and then work backwards as to how you can persuade the court to do it. Now, I think that is quite a good summary of of what a good advocate does, but it's the reverse of what a good judge should do because a good judge should start with the evidence, with the legal materials, with the arguments and work towards the conclusion to which they lead. You don't start with a conclusion when you begin to hear a case, or at least you shouldn't. I hope I'm not sounding too pompous or too virtuous, but uh, a judge who goes into court knowing what the answer is, is not to my mind a good judge, especially in a difficult case. So, but I don't think that's a man woman thing to go back to your question. I think that is just an advocate versus judging
2: thing. Um, Justice Avella, you wanted to come in there? I just wanted to agree with something that Brenda said about the capacity for judging coming from what we used to think of as the only route. You, You were a lawyer and then you were a judge. You were a litigator and then you were a judge. Canada has a very wide candidate pool and many of the men and women who are picked for the judiciary come from either academics or the public, many from the public service, because they bring to the bench their various experiences. So I just want to endorse the notion that the traditional uh, start a law firm, go to the judiciary. That ended a long time, about twenty or thirty years ago in Canada. And not only is the, is there no lessening of the quality of the judiciary, it's enhanced by the variety of experiences that the men and women who come from those different areas. Bring And at the end of the day, as Brenda says, the question is, are you actually listening with an open mind to the evidence you're hearing? Not did you used to do family law? Did you used to do commercial law? Do you know how to listen and apply what you hear to the law? So, do you think there's any difference in the approach of a man and a woman?
1: In it would, would the kind of male-dominated areas benefit from a, a female lawyer,
2: or do you think there's any difference in how men and women lawyer? <laughs> I can tell you that on my court, when, when Louise Sharon and I were appointed together in 2004, we became four women on the Supreme Court. We've had 10. Uh, Since 1981, when Bertha Wilson was the first woman and people said the place felt different with when there were four women there out of the nine than it did uh, otherwise. I have met some uh, very wonderful, generous feminist colleagues who were men and I have had uh, men and women colleagues who were not very sensitive to the particular needs of women. So I, think I, I want the numbers increased, but I think we have to be careful in stereotyping genders supporting just that position. Uh, they do bring an experience, but I, I mean, any of us at our stage will tell you that it's no, just because you're a particular race, color, religion doesn't necessarily mean that's the way you're going to judge a particular case. And that's as it should be. Right. I mean, yes. you cannot say, oh, you're a woman, so you're going to be for women in every case or against or you're a man. So you're going to be against that. We are so much more sophisticated about how we understand judging now than we did in those days when it was the yes. case that you got very little sensitivity about women from many of the men who were judges. But on the other hand, some of the key rulings on behalf of women in Canada were made by men. So. Mm. Mm. And. Sorry. Just
4: Mary uh, go ahead. I was just going to. say, I agree, first of all, with Brenda that everybody, uh, all good lawyers or are, are judges are lawyers first. And but there are different approaches of lawyers and many different approaches of judges, some better than other. But I don't think that there is. Um, a female or a male approach either to being a, an advocate or, or to being a judge, nor should there be. But I, I'm all in favor of there being very significant number of women uh, amongst the judiciary. But I think that's for slightly differing reasons, because I do think that for both the litigants, uh, uh, for the public in general, and for lawyers, it is very important that the judiciary is representative of um, both the gender divide in the community and indeed lots of other uh, uh, diversity issues as well. But Fundamentally, every judge who is appointed must be somebody who is fit to be a judge, because particularly most judges start off in a court where they are the single judge and they must be capable of deciding in an appropriate way, as has been said, on the evidence. And I've always had a view that how you decide a case is almost more important than what you decide, because so often for the litigants, how you decide and uh, certainly it has been my experience that litigants who have lost before me have come back or have sent a message uh, i've had it from personal litigants to thank me for the manner in which the case was conducted even though they have lost and i think that's an incredibly important aspect of, of um, being a, a judge but i don't is a difference. And I'd just like to add one thing from what Maura, I said, I absolutely agree with Maura about childcare being essential for everyone, for all young uh, couples who uh, um, are trying to work and have families in the current situation. But I think differing to what the experiences of Brenda and Rosie have been, given that the Irish bar is still Everybody is self-employed, doesn't have the support of chambers or even groupings or whatever. There are additional hurdles for um, women who take time out because I had the experience of a judge which was extremely unfortunate, but a young uh, barrister was sent in, uh, a devil as we say, a junior who was working with somebody, sent in to apply to adjourn a case before me because her so-called master uh, was going out on maternity leave. And I had to say, you know, does your client know that they're asking for their case to be put off? The other side were objecting they wanted their case on. Unfortunately, litigation doesn't wait and can't wait. Um, I mean, there are some instances where a client may make a choice to wait and the other side may agree for reasons. But absent that... Unfortunately, the litigation has to go on. And if you're a self-employed practitioner, you don't have the colleague in the firm or whatever who can do it. So there are very particular problems facing, I think, young women at the Irish bar. Uh, and if- uh, just on that, we have some questions
1: coming in, so I'm trying to get to some of them. What else can be done to retain women and to uh, it, it retain them so that they can progress to be a uh, senior council? Um, and is there a place for positive discrimination in terms of women and in terms of uh, other uh, minorities or in
4: terms of having a more diverse bar? What's your view on that? Mine? Um, well, I think in Ireland, being appointed as a senior counsel is still fundamentally a choice for the individual barrister. So you have to apply and you have to meet certain criteria. I think
1: think the question is, how do you retain women? How do you retain them so they get to the point where they feel they can apply for that position?
4: Well, come back to my point about them being self-employed. The Bar Council, since my time, has made huge strides in giving support to them. They have you know they have um, given them freedom from fees various other things that support them remaining in practice through a maternity leave or it's not just the maternity leave but the point of high pressure for a lot of young women is when their children are between the ages probably of about you know one and seven and that's also the time when they might be in Late 30s, early 40s, or through their 40s, and they might be coming to the point of taking silk uh, in mid 40s to. And I mean, what can the bar council do? They can give them support, um, and the childcare point is extremely important. But that's a wider thing than the bar council. But if people have, if practitioners have more limited time available for their practice, and a lot of barristers are working, as the survey showed, you know, 50, 60 hours a week um, at at that stage. I mean, I'm not sure what else can be done. These, again, comes back to my question of choices. If people choose to be a self-employed barrister, then they do have to give it the time. Um, and I'm not sure what other supports can be given to people, uh,
0: Lady Hale. You
1: have talked a lot, and you have been a champion of diversity and of the lack, and uh, uh, have pointed out the lack of diversity um, in the the Irish, legal, the English legal system, and indeed, I think the same could be said here. Would you a question we have here about positive discrimination? Do you think that has a greater role to play both in, both in terms of women and in terms of ensuring more diversity?
3: No, I'm not in favour of. Positive discrimination. In other words, appointing a woman or somebody from another uh, less well represented group, even though they are not as good as another candidate. I think that is not good uh, for the profession and it is not good for either of the people, either the person appointed or for the person who hasn't been appointed. So I'm not in favour of positive discrimination. I am in favour of affirmative action, that is taking steps which will make life easier for disadvantaged groups to prove their worth. Uh, Things like having a bar nursery, for example, which uh, after a lot of effort was set up in in London, things like having an email code, which the Bar Council has promoted in, uh, in England, whereby you are not expected to reply to an email if it comes in after nine o'clock at night, that sort of thing. Practical things like that um, will go a long way towards helping uh, women and other people with uh, family responsibilities uh, to maintain uh, a practice. Uh, And many chambers, I mean, the chamber system is still, they're all self-employed, but it does enable a certain amount of support to be given in a way which the Irish library system perhaps doesn't. But we have to think creatively about how to make a professional life more accessible, uh, more maintainable uh, for women, and for anybody else who's got responsibilities outside their professional life. Uh, And I think it can be done. And I I can
2: see Rosie wants to say something. (laughs) Only, no, I don't disagree with anything I've heard. But I did want to make one observation, Orla, and that is, I'm a little troubled by a concept of positive discrimination. I don't know what that means. So, you, if you have discrimination, it means you are arbitrarily disadvantaging someone based on their membership in a group. There's no such thing as positive arbitrary disadvantage. But I think an approach that says, uh, we call it employment equity in Canada, not affirmative action, because that's, that's a very inflammatory term based on what, what we read about what goes on in the United States. What are the barriers to the possibility of each of these groups becoming, taking their rightful place, not unmeritorious people, although, you know, there was an old boys network which didn't have qualifications necessarily attached to it. So the question is, what is there in the system that is impeding the possibility of people who are qualified from taking positions, uh, notwithstanding their gender? So, I mean, if you put it that way, I mean, if, when I hear the word positive discrimination, that's an oxymoron. How could it be good to have discrimination? So let's think in terms of what, what do these people tell us the barriers are? And let's examine those barriers. And what can we do that doesn't implode the economics of a, of a law firm? Uh, it may temporarily dislodge it, but lots of things do as I said, somebody can get sick through no fault of their own and take some time off. Uh, how strict should we be about some of the concerns that women or minorities have, and what is happening to them in the profession, so that over time and quickly over time, more of them are are made to feel they are properly members of the legal profession and judicial communities. So, just a you know, words matter in our profession a lot. Uh, so I, I just, I, I'm just i just suggesting a, a shift in the way that, that uh, phenomenon is presented and, and the solutions for it. Maura,
1: what is your uh, view as okay. the Bar Council as a question in about what practical steps? Yeah.
0: Well, I was, I was just going to jump hey, in there, try, try and stop <laughs> me on this one. Um, so one of the policies that we're following um, is equitable briefing. So basically what that means is if, if everybody... If 10 people are all at 100%, um, we'd ask the people, whether they be in the DPP's office or the Chief State Solicitor's office or whatever insurance company, whatever the large briefing network is, the the grouping that has the power to send work to the barristers, that they would consider sending it to those who have passed the mark, who have proven they're capable of doing it, who are uh, as meritorious as any other college. But to consider those minorities whether they be women it, it, it shouldn't it shouldn't be a, a fact that you don't get the brief because you're a woman and um, it shouldn't be the fact that you don't get the brief because you're gay it shouldn't be a fact that you don't get the brief because you're colored that shouldn't matter if you have passed a particular standard and proven yourself you should be in that mix so it's opening up equitable briefing is what we're aiming for opening up so that more people uh, are visible to those who have the power to send the briefs out. Um, what else can the bar do? The bar is, it, we, we've set up our own uh, committee uh, dealing with uh, diversity here at the bar, uh, resilience and performance, and that's uh, chaired this year by Ethan McNichol. I was chair of that committee um, uh, for myself for, for a few years. It, it, it's aiming uh, to open up the eyes of society to recognise that The Bar of Ireland, for example, has to mirror society. We have to uh, ensure that uh, children who are in Daesh schools get the opportunities to come to the King's Inns and qualify as barristers. So a scholarship programme has been established in the name of the Chief Justice, Susan Denham, and that allows for four candidates from Daesh schools to get places in the King's Inns, and for the first four years here at the Bar, they're supported. Um, So it's a case... I mean... I, I keep saying there's more to be done, the very fact that it took 41 years for the Bar of Ireland to elect a second female chair is just you know, mind-boggling in a way that it... Well, that more. I was,
1: go- I was going to ask you, did your experience campaigning for that position give you any particular insights into, into some of the issues?
0: Um, well, let me see. I mean, I, I, I went about it in the way of I had been on the bar council as a junior council. i would had two years in the bar council as a senior council. And I just went about it to be re-elected to the bar council again. And I was very lucky that a large number of my colleagues reelected me. And I was just very lucky that I was able to approach members on the council and say to them, look, not only is it time for a change, but I think I have the, the merit. I can do the job. I know what I want to do. I have a plan. I believe it has to be opened up. Um, The diversity at the bar, not only am I from the country, not only am I a circuit practitioner, not only am I a woman, not only am I gay. I mean, what more diversity (laughs) can we prove in the year 2021 that the bar is going forward? And it is going forward. And my colleagues, thankfully, uh, have shown their support to me and for me. And it's hopefully onwards and upwards and opening up of the bar, which is for its own good and benefit.
1: Um, I, I'm trying to take as many questions as I can. I'm just going to kind of mash a few of them together. One of them is, um, and maybe I'll go first to Justice Abella with this. What was the, the biggest obstacle you faced in your career? Uh, and aligned that, somebody else has asked, did any men help or hinder you along the way in particular? Was there any particular standout moment where you faced
2: a particular obstacle? And, and does, does that obstacle still exist? I wasn't brought up to think of life in terms of obstacles. So were there were there things in in my path that were harder to deal with than other? Of course, uh, were there people that helped me along the way? I could not have done what I did as a practicing lawyer as a sole practitioner for for those four years that I practiced law before I became a judge without the help of my male. Colleagues in the legal profession, they were indispensable and they were helpful. I don't think there's also any doubt the fact that there were none of us around. Like I was not a threat. There was one of me, and I was this, I mean, this adorable mother of two practicing law. Isn't that the cutest thing you've ever seen? And judge. So I, I mean, I. It wasn't as tough for me as it was for other people. And I had a husband who was a history professor. Uh, He was very. He was, I would say, a 60% parent. So I I don't represent, I I cannot say, having had the the luck of healthy children, uh, a great husband, my mother lived five minutes away and she helped us. Everything that came in my way that was a barrier was just something I had to overcome and none of it stood in my way. Most of the people who helped me were men. Because that's what the profession and judiciary consisted of at the time. Some of my greatest adversaries were also men. Um, Some of the women in the profession were wonderful. Look, meeting Brenda was was a highlight for me. Meeting other women around the world who who gave each other support and said, go for it. Come on, we're here. We're all going to be there for each other because there were... Few of us. We all helped each other deal with what we knew were going to be obstacles because the system was as it was for 100 years. And we were coming in and saying, "Okay, that was then. It's a new century. Change is hard for people because change means adjusting a status quo they're used to. And it's a status quo that isn't good for us. So we're saying change the status quo. We don't want a slice of the pie. We want access to all of it. Wait a minute, that's not your slice. You can't have all of us, I, I, that's our. right. We'll tell you what, what part you can have. Well, so this generation has fought to make sure that there that pie is for everyone. We've changed the ingredients so there's more of it to go around for everybody. We've all had things we've had to deal with. It's called life, um, but But I cannot tell you as somebody about to retire from the Supreme Court of Canada at the age of 75, that I am a package of obstacles that I overcame. I am not. I am the product of a series of wonderful um, opportunities that came my way, wonderful people who helped me realize them, a great family who was there for me all the way. So I am not your model of adversity triumph. Um, did, did you, as one uh, female barrister, female
1: advocate, did you encounter any hostility from the bench? Were there judges who treated you
2: differently as a, as a, as a woman? Of course, no. Oh, well, I'm never sure if it was because I was a woman or, or because I was very assertive as a woman or because I was Jewish. I mean, there are no women judges on, on the court at the time, and there, I don't know that there were any Jewish. We had had one for Alaskan. Uh, but no Jewish women at the time. So stereotypes kick in. Uh, but I never s- step back and analyze mm, is this anti Semitism or sexism? Is, or, or is it just that they don't like me, which is also possible, right? I did not fit any mold. I didn't dress like anybody else. I dressed like a girl in the 60s and 70s dressed with dangling earrings and short skirts and all of those things that, and, and I had blue nail polish sometimes. Um, so I, I I never expected that I would be warmly welcomed. That wasn't their job. It was just to accept the professionalism that I was offering on its own terms. And most did, most did. Uh, I have a question about whether or not your background uh, influenced
1: how you uh, dealt or how you saw migrant related to legal issues or the whole issue of immigration and, and, and migrant issues. Does your own background and what you've gone through,
2: does that affect how you deal with those kind of cases? Oh, I, you know, I think most of the judges I know, yes, of course, my experience as a woman, as a Jewish person, as an immigrant, uh, affected me and so did the receptivity of this country to all of the above affect me, the generosity of the country that, that took me in. Um, I, you know, it's very hard to say to a judge, so, so do, you th- do you think you're more humane because you went through adversity or do you think you're really compassionate? I like to think that I am, uh, but it doesn't judge an outcome in a case. You know, the, as Brenda says, the facts do. So I I have never, unlike Mary, ever received a note from somebody who lost a case saying, great job. I mean, I, I, I have run into a lot of people who have said, you got it wrong. How could you do that? That's so wrong. And in fact, when I used to lose cases as a lawyer in court, I always thought it was the judge's fault. Like he just he just didn't get what I was saying. Come on. I mean, it was so so clear. So I never had the experience of of people who who lost agreeing with what I said. But I also never said to myself, okay, Rosie, now just be really compassionate and really humane. That's who we are, right? We bring who we are to our judging, but we also learn as judges very quickly to transcend our quotidian reality in our life and look at the life in front of you that you are judging, not from the top down, from the ground up. Judge finlay
1: was there any particular, I suppose maybe I won't use the word obstacle, but barrier that you felt you had
4: to overcome? No, I, I think, I, I, again, like Justice Abela, I, Rosie, I feel incredibly lucky. Um, and I think as something that Brenda said earlier, I, I, think I came at a time, um, certainly in terms of appointment to the High Court, et cetera, where um, people were looking for women, Uh, to become judges and therefore I I was given the opportunity um, and I really can't say that of course I met obstacles but they were the obstacles that all my male colleagues were kind of meeting every day of the week as well and um, but I I don't I never felt I met an obstacle just because I was a woman and I was never I don't ever recall being treated differently in court. Oh, I I do recall one occasion. Um, Uh, (laughs) It was a jokey thing from the particular judge and a bit like Brenda has said, it was a big commercial thing. There were 10 senior counsel and I was the only female senior counsel and the judge in question who knew me terribly well and I always practised as Mary Finlay, so I was always Miss Finlay in court he suddenly said in the middle of everything, Miss Finley, or Mrs. Gagan or Mrs. Finley Gagan, what can I do for you today? And I remember feeling yuck. But on the other hand, you know, I just knew it was his form and it didn't fuss me. Um, you know, but, but I never felt any serious um, antagonism because I, I was a woman. Of course, there were some judges who didn't like me and didn't like the submissions I was making, uh, but not because I was a woman.
1: What about yourself, Lady Hale? Is there any particular, does any incident stand out to you as a as a moment where you had to really dig deep or you had to overcome a, a particular obstacle in your profession, in your career?
3: I'm afraid, I, like the others, I, I can't really say that there were specific obstacles other than the uh, general challenges of the professional life that I've led, which is a challenging one. Uh, And I don't think it would be any more challenging for a woman than for a man. Uh, Of course, there were the challenges of there being so few of us. So obviously, those few of us who did start out in the law, uh, why were we allowed to do it? Why did we persuade people that we could do it? So perhaps there were challenges there, but they were in terms of other people choosing to allow us to, to do it. So I don't think I can feel that. And I've not got many incidents. Uh, I do remember my very first meeting as a High Court judge. Um, All the High Court judges get together in the Lord Chief Justice's court uh, to have the headmaster's pep talk for the term. And uh, one of the items on the agenda, there were six women in the room and over 100 men. Uh, And one of the items on the agenda was what the women judges should be called because one of us objected to being called Mrs. Justice because she practiced under her maiden name. Uh, And uh, so we had this long debate about uh, whether the women had to be called Mrs. Justice. Three of the women were quite happy with it and three of us objected to it. But of course, the men discussed what we should be called and the right thing to do would have been to drop the Mrs and Mr entirely. But the men were not prepared to drop the Mr. And all the pompous speeches about, oh, I was introduced to my queen as Mr Justice X and Mr Justice X, I will always be. So the outcome of the meeting was that the men decided what the women should call themselves. Mm. In fact, we should have been given Free reign
2: to
4: to decide, basically.
2: I'm glad Ireland. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I'll wait for Mary. Mary, go ahead.
4: Sorry. I was just going to say that in Ireland, we were given free reign always. And I think thanks to Mella Carroll, the first High Court judge, because following the English tradition, which was that as a single person, you are Mrs Justice because of Miss Justice a possibility. Um, uh, and when Mello was appointed, she was asked and she said she'd always practiced at the bar as Miss Carroll, and she would become Miss, Carol, Miss Justice Carroll. and from the outset. But she did initially say she would be called the same as all of her male colleagues, which always was my lord in Ireland. But now she she thought better of that about 10 or 15 years later. Um, and having chaired a commission on the status of the women, And she gave up being called my Lord, but they were still calling. When I was in Point First, I was called my Lord constantly because we never called anybody my lady in Ireland because we don't have titles. We didn't have any. (laughs) uh... Orla,
2: can I jump in just for a second? First of all, I agree. We got rid of Mr. and Madam Justice. Uh, We are justice. And we early on got rid of my lady my Lord just because it felt, uh, it was uncomfortable. I mean, it was so royal. You know, and and we're just we're judge, we're people in a professional position of judging. But as you as the others talked, and as you, when I tried to think of obstacles, and, and I can't, I I have to tell you though that I can I can remember the biggest challenge that I had, and it was pub it's it's the public scrutiny that we get as women in our profession. Mm-hmm. So I did a a royal commission on equality and employment when I was thirty seven federal overall commission, I was a provincial court judge, on what measures could be taken for women, um, indigenous people, persons with disabilities, and visible minorities. And the conclusion after a year was mandatory measures have to be taken, voluntary won't work, it's too glacial, not quotas, but over time, uh, measure the rate of change. It landed into controversy from one end of Canada to another there wasn't a single newspaper that endorsed it now having come from uh, adorable mother of two appointed to the bench to the virago of the western world uh, from every newspaper in Canada was it was a challenge to me it wasn't an obstacle but it was a challenge not because it was a professional potential barrier but because I didn't know how to deal with the vituperative criticism. It wasn't, well, we wouldn't do it that way. It was, what is she thinking? Ridiculous. Now, over time, uh, I taught myself that if I like where the criticism is coming from and can understand it, because there is criticism when you take controversial positions, and that's why judges have tenure, because we're supposed to be uh, ready to risk public criticism and controversy. Uh, because we're not going back for elections every four years, be, the way the politicians are. I, so I, I made myself a mental template. If I, if I like who the criticism is coming from or understand it, and I like where the support is coming from, then I say to myself, and well, that's fine. I can live with that because it means I've earned my friends and I've earned my critics. So I had to make peace with public disapprobation, which wasn't anything I was used to.
1: Um, it will be, be a lot worse now i imagine and i think the chief justice or the the, the incoming chief justice here referred
2: to it the social media aspect of it now the absolutely media. there there's no question and that so that was in the days before there was now but i learned to be comfortable with criticism with public criticism and public controversy and the older i got what was controversial human rights in employment is now second nature. Everybody's saying, how do we get diversity going? So you have to have in your head a little a little um, angel that says, it's okay. Let's see how time judges this. The, the agitations of the moment will not tell you whether you did the right thing or not, but time will. And so over time, all of my controversies have turned out to be really boring of courses. Mm-hmm. And that's, that makes me feel good. So you have to take those risks professionally, but they are not obstacles, Orla. They are just, they are the challenges of doing what you think is the right thing to do as a professional, male, female, or whatever. I'm just conscious of the time now, so I'm just, we won't get to
1: all the questions, but one question that might uh, be of value to all the speakers as as a final question is a standout career moment. And aligned with that is, you know, is there anything you'd have done differently? So maybe Lady Hale, would you have, view on that, is your standout career moment the one we all remember, the most recent one, uh, or is there something in your career that you're particularly proud of that
3: did not uh, attract such public uh, notice? That's a very difficult question, isn't it? Because uh, the prorogation case was definitely a standout moment. It was the most important constitutional case that's come before the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom or indeed the House of Lords before that for a long, long time. Uh, And there were many challenges involved in actually putting it on, deciding it. We decided it quicker than almost any other Supreme Court case, uh, and we were unanimous. So that really was a standout moment. Uh, I am very satisfied with some of the law reforms that came from my time at the Law Commission. And if I could just uh, respond to something that Rosie's just said... Uh, I was vilified as a legal commissar subverting family values for some of my family law reforms. But what was rejected in the 1990s has just got on to the statute book in 1920, in 2020. So I always say about law reform, never say never, it's time will come. There's a a theme
1: of I was right all along and you'll find out. And coming here is there anything you'd have done
3: differently oh probably all sorts of things uh, but um it's difficult to think of examples uh, of things if ever i have upset people without meaning to i mean sometimes you mean to upset people i mean colleagues or superiors and so on uh, you mean to challenge them, even if they're going to get upset. But sometimes you can upset people without meaning to. Have I time to give an example? Yes. Um, and it is, it is an example of something which we didn't mention when we talked about different styles of judging amongst uh, men and women. The one difference that we do have is that as women, we lead different lives from men's lives. And sometimes our experience of leading a woman's life informs our view of a case, uh, which otherwise it wouldn't. We had a case about a um, an elderly woman who was not incontinent, but because she had had strokes, she needed help to go to the loo in the middle of the night. The local authority had been providing her with that help and they suddenly decided that instead they would provide her with incontinence pants. She was outraged. She thought this was an affront to her dignity and she challenged it. And uh, I, my, my colleagues thought it was all right. I took the view that it was irrational to meet one need with something that was designed for a completely different need. That was my view. Uh, but that was partly, I think, informed by my knowledge of a woman of how difficult it is to to go to the loo in the middle of the night. Whereas the men, of course, uh, as somebody pointed out to me later, and forgive me if this is indelicate, but we women are prepared to talk about bodily functions, men can always pee in a bottle. So as far as they were concerned, this was no big deal. But when in my judgment, I pointed out that logically, uh, if the local authority could do this, if she needed to urinate in the night, they could do it also if she needed to defecate in the night and indeed they could do it during the day. My male colleagues were outraged. They were really upset by my reference to defecation, logical and inevitable though it was. And I am sorry that I upset them. I didn't mean to upset them. I nevertheless thought it was important to make the point. So, yes, that is probably the greatest regret of my professional career. So, there we are. Well,
1: thank you for that. For that. Um, and what about yourself, Judge Finnegan? Have you something that stands out in your memory very, very starkly, or is there something you would have done very differently?
4: Um, I, I don't think I have or care to refer to either a standout case in which I pleaded as an advocate or there were. A certain cases that came the right way that I was both pleasantly surprised and very satisfied with. And of course, there were others I lost. And like Rosie said earlier, at the time, I certainly just believe I just got it wrong. But um, I, I think as a judge, for me, um, of all the different opportunities that I was given, the opportunity to have been part of the group of judges who established the new Constitutional Court of Appeal, that was really a fantastic opportunity. And it was given what the then Supreme Court in their wisdom thought was wise to send us so many cases to deal with and the manner in which um, we collectively managed to uh, approach the very enormous task we were given. That was to me the standout moment in my uh, judicial career in terms of things that i regret or think i did wrong um i've no doubt that in particular where i gave extemporary judgments perhaps at the end of a day doing a long list of short applications and you just wanted to finish and do it i'd say that once or twice i foolishly decided i would there and then give a ruling which I began to reflect on, and it's it's something that I've always said to younger judges starting off, you know, if you have the opportunity, uh, if you're going to give even an extemporary ruling, perhaps just keep it overnight and just reflect o- on it. And, uh, you know, I, I'd say I did reach incorrect decisions. Of course, I reached lots. As a high court judge, I reached lots of decisions, even in the court of appeal, that my superior judges thought were wrong. But that's a different thing to doing something which you yourself um, the next day or day after think if I'd only taken my time a little bit more and reflected a bit more. And for that, I am obviously uh, sorry.
1: What about yourself, uh, Judge Abella? Have you any standout moment for yourself or anything that really sticks out in your memory or something that you would have done differently? I.
2: Well, first of all, no, I have I have no regrets, and again, that's I don't ever look back uh, because there's no point. I don't do I should have could have uh, in my life. I'm sure there are things that could have been different, but I I really don't think about it. My only regret is that I didn't have more time, that there weren't 36 hours in a day instead of 24. But judicially, I think the hardest judging I ever did, without naming a case, was seven years. Uh, as a family court judge, deciding day in and day day out whether to take other people's babies away when I had two of my own. Uh, Because there was nobody who could help you and nobody who could tell you whether it was going to turn out to be in the best interest of the child. On the Court of Appeal, I got to uh, decide the first uh, gay rights uh, decisions. I have had a chance to make constitutional judgments about... um, uh, whether or not uh, women should be pay equity cases, uh, that the Charter of Rights and Freedoms includes the right to, um, to freedom of association, includes the right to strike, that uh, international the customary international law is part of domestic law. I mean, there've been wonderful, wonderful opportunities to, to, to do law. Copyright, I've loved my copyright cases too. But I have to tell you, and and I say this, and I forgive me if it sounds maudlin, but I take nothing for granted, and I take no one for granted. And again, I'm sure that's because of where I come from. To be able to say at the age of 75, on the on the verge of retirement, um, that I have nice sons, that the kids are good, you know, because I knew no mothers who were lawyers when I when we got. Pregnant with our first, and certainly um, I know there are many now, but this was an experiment I had no idea was going to succeed. And by succeed, I meant, are they nice people? Now I can tell you that's what I take the greatest pride in, the fact that these two men now, 47 and 44, are nice people, and they're both lawyers. <laughs> so if did I, do something wrong. <laughs> I say to my husband, who's a history professor, with the greatest dignity, (laughs) (laughs) they became lawyers. So this is something I have waited for. I've never given interviews until now, you know, those, how do you manage interview ever? Because I didn't know if I would. Um, So those are, those are the life blessings that you look back on and say professionally, of course it was a privilege, but what really lasts and what matters is family to me. And, and they, they are, all, all three of the husband and, and two, two boys and their families, they're nice people. They're, they're wise and they're caring and they're, and they're generous. So that's my biggest satisfaction in life.
1: And their lawyers, which is a double, a double achievement to make them nice, caring lawyers. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of the time, and I honestly sometimes when you start these kind of discussions, you wonder, are we going to be able to keep talking? And honestly, I think we could go on for another hour. And um, it's absolutely fascinating all of you have such wisdom to impart and such great insights for women and men and for all of us um, and i think uh, judge abella is definitely going to be a motivational speaker in her next career but no regrets don't look back and you'll be right in the end and you'll be proved right in the end and um, it's been wonderful for me to listen to you all and um, i hope for the the there's still more questions coming in and, and people are, are delighted with the uh, the the insights you've given here today Um i want to thank you all so much for speaking to us um, and i'd just like to hand back to uh maura who's going to close tonight's discussion
0: um well thank you orla for uh, agreeing to act as moderator and to ask all the questions and before we finish i would just like to thank not just personally but on behalf of the bar i would like to thank baroness hale uh, justice abella and our own uh, justice mary finley gagan and in addition to thanking our sponsors and to uh, thanking everyone who's tuned in, I want to thank our Public Affairs Committee, which is run by our own Paul Gunning. So thank you for all your support. And then finally, I would like to express our congratulations to the first female Chief Justice. Uh, La- I don't know now, I'm confused. Should to be called Lady or Miss? The new Lady Chief Justice in Northern Ireland, Justice Egan. So yes. we would like to extend our thanks to everyone and congratulations to her and please god we'll see everyone in
2: person next time round. let's hope so thank you this has been fantastic i love doing this with mary and brenda and orla and orla thank you so much what a joy it's been thank,
4: thank you, you. everyone. thank and you so much for us to
2: thank you
0: so much thank you for your time